So not only, you know, fighting classical military operations, but we work also on the different crises and uh, our military assets are very important for us to help to find solutions on it. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vagam Radian reporting from the Royal Air Force Chief of Air Staff's Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference here in London. On today's program, we have two interviews. The French Air and Space Force is among the forces participating in a massive Indo-Pacific air mobility exercise. We hear from the man commanding the 19 aircraft and hundreds of airmen that are in this exercise alongside U.S. and allied forces. Plus, my conversation with retired Air Marshal Greg Bagwell, the president of the Air and Space Power Association, on takeaways from this year's RAF Chiefs Annual Conference. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, a lot of this week's news centers on the NATO summit. We have heard the breakthrough there where Turkey is going to allow Sweden to become a member of NATO, withdrawing its objections, but nothing comes without a quid pro quo. And part of that quid pro quo is that Turkey is going to get F-16s from the United States. They're looking for 40 Vipers. We'll see how many they eventually wind up with. Now, we also learned And this is probably coincidental that Sweden, the other major partner in that compromise, is going to be receiving 250 AMRAAM missiles from the United States in a deal worth about $605 million. That represents a significant upgrade in Swedish air capability, but also we don't know whether that's involved with the Turkish deal letting them accede to NATO, but it's certainly a welcome gift for a new member. Australia is going to be sending a Boeing E-7A wedge tail for a six-month deployment in Germany to monitor activities in Ukraine. That's an unusual deployment for the Australians. It certainly shows a commitment to mutual defense with the NATO countries, but it also lets the U.S. start to see how well the wedge tail operates in the real world now that they're going to be replacing the E-3 AWACS with that same aircraft. And as you mentioned, Vago, the U.S. Air Force is in the middle of its largest ever mobility exercise in the Pacific, Mobility Guardian 23. And we'll have your interview with Brigadier General Marc Lebouille, who is leading the French part of that exercise later in the program. Thanks very much, JJ. Uh, And it was a great conversation with uh, General Lebouille. I want to start with the Turkey deal uh, first. Obviously, Turkey has wanted F-16s for some time. Uh, The country was bounced as a partner from the F-35 Lightning II program after Ankara decided that it was going to accept Russian air and missile defense weapons, uh, ultimately. Uh, And the alliance decided that that was too big of a risk. And indeed, that's one of the reasons why Rheinmetall is making center fuselages now. That was the job that the Turks were uh, going to do. How important is this F-16 deal? What does it mean for the F-16 program? Because Turkey is a large F-16 operator in the first instance, 
Anyway, why are these planes so special to Ankara? Well, in part because it is actually a formal tie with the United States that the F-35 had represented. And you can see the Erdogan government wanting to get back in the United States good graces in this F-16 deal. In some ways, it's less about the aircraft than it is simply about who's going to provide the aircraft. What we don't know in all of this is what version of the F-16 they're going to get. Is Turkey going to get something that is roughly compatible with what other NATO members have, or are they getting something more advanced, such as we've been selling to Qatar in recent years? Uh, looking for the details on that, and we expect them soon. And it was interesting, although I think the United States supplying AMRAMs to Sweden is a good sign for a country that is going to be a formal uh, alliance, right? I mean, uh, historically, Sweden prided itself on uh, neutrality and not having alliances, and it has uh, not been neutral for a long time. Let's be frank, it is an EU nation, and this is uh, becoming part of a formal alliance, a military alliance, which is something historically the Swedes have not wanted. And uh, talk to us a little bit about the wedge tail as well, right? The U.S. Air Force decided to acquire this airplane. Australia and Turkey were the two uh, launch customers uh, of uh, the wedge tail airborne early warning and control aircraft. Finally, the U.S. Air Force decided that its 707-based or KC-135 framed aircraft are going to be replaced by twin engine, uh, effectively uh, modified 737 airplanes. Right. I mean, what's the Air Force going to learn from this deployment? I mean, I think it's incredible that a Pacific power is sending an airplane to participate in a NATO mission to you know, safeguard the alliance. But from a broader perspective, what's the Air Force going to learn from this that it wouldn't have learned otherwise or participating in exercises, for example, in mm-hmm. Australia? It's an interesting trade, given that we're seeing France sending the aircraft to Asia, and now we're seeing an Asian power sending aircraft to Europe, further integrating the global alliance. I think that's it's a great observation. Although, right, I mean, uh, France is also a Pacific power with 2 million uh, citizens there. So, you know, yes. France has a bigger reason to be in the Pacific in many cases. Sure. But overall, this is a message to both Russia and China that says, hey, in either case, you're not just taking on the countries near you, you're taking on the rest of the world. And this is a demonstration of that very vividly to both countries in turn. In terms of what the US Air Force is going to specifically learn from wedge tail operations, look, that aircraft has been in operation with the Australians and with the Brits. They've used it. There no doubt have been US observers seeing how they operate, but this is going to be, once again, bringing a modern system, a cutting edge system into a conflict to see how it works, not just theoretically, but when there's real shooting going on. We saw the Russian Air Force sending some of their latest equipment to fly over Syria, where there was no opposition. There was no reason to send their latest except to use it as a testing ground. And this is very much what the wedge tail going to Ukraine is going to be. I uh, also think it's worth pointing out uh, that French President Emmanuel Macron at uh, the Vilnius uh, summit uh, also mentioned that France is going to send its version of the storm shadow weapon, the scalp, to Ukraine. Uh, And it's uh, clear that Ukraine has been using the British supplied storm shadow weapons uh, to great effect for long range precision strike. It's Avengers Assemble. All the good guys are coming together to try and do the right thing wherever they are around the world. Hey, Vago, I need to add a note to our listeners. Last week, we teased a story for this week about a new European lightweight fighter, and I'm just going to leave them hanging a little bit longer. We'll have that in next week's program. We're already chock-a-block with information as it is this week.
That's right. And I'm going to get the inside story on this new program next week when uh, I have a chance to uh, to talk to some of our good friends at the Royal International uh, Air Tattoo over the weekend. And speaking of which, uh, given that the Royal International Air Tattoo happens each year, each July at RAF Fairford in Gloucestershire, it has been an absolute pleasure to be at this conference, uh, you know, it is hosted each year by the chief of air staff uh, of uh, the Royal Air Force. Uh, and this is Air Chief Marshal Sir Richard uh, Knighton's uh, first Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference. Uh, and his partner in this is retired Air Marshal Greg Bagwell, who is the president of uh, the Air and Space Force Association here. Uh, and I had an opportunity to talk to him a little bit about the highlights from this year's event. Here's my conversation with retired Air Marshal Greg Bagwell. Sir, thanks very much. It's been an incredible conference. We're uh, at uh, virtually the very end of it. And I wanted to get your sense on what the key takeaways and the messages were. I mean, terrific conversations about sustainability and actually the military imperative for sustainability. Uh, we've heard about lessons from Russia's war on Ukraine, as well as discussing Indo-Pacific and, and space and indeed innovation. From your standpoint, what were the key takeaways for the audience and for you? Yeah, the, the takeaways for me, some of them are the ones we normally expect, um, and then there's a few new ones. So the ones that we normally expect is this is a great opportunity to convene a group of like-minded aviators to talk about the challenges they all face. You know, we've got over 40 chiefs here from around the world, from all regions. Meeting and discussing and debating the topics is so fundamental in just building those relationships, maintaining those uh, cooperative relationships that we have around the world. So that, that's the first takeaway. It's always good to see that. It, it, it's almost a given when we convene here. The backdrop, however, is very much linked, particularly to, to Ukraine because of the near and present danger of that threat, but also a little bit also to the sort of growth in, in the relationship with China, or should I say deterioration in the relationship with China. Um, so just taking those in order, I think the things that we are looking at in terms of Ukraine, there's both the need to assist Ukraine in their continued fight, and that will continue, um, the assistance that is. Uh, and we hope for a good outcome on that one. But we all recognize that Russia is, is, is still a formidable foe and is not going to go away easily. And the second question from that is, even if it does come to a good fruition and Ukraine is re-established in its proper borders, what does that mean for NATO beyond for the next five to ten years? And I think we all now are refreshing our views on that Russian threat and realizing partly from seeing it in action, but also partly from seeing how it's been fought in Ukraine as to what that means for our own postures, our own stockpiles, our own threats and capabilities, so that we can both deter that threat and, if necessary, defeat it. And, and, and it sounds crazy, but actually to repolarize and, and revisit that debate at this critical point in time is, is long overdue. And that was really useful. Um, one of the things uh, that was a uh, hallway conversation we heard directed in the messages, I mean, I should give a shout out to Cass, the Chief of Air Staff, uh, Air uh, Chief Marshal uh, Sir Richard Knighton, when he said, we have a new air operating concept. This only works if we do this with allies and partners. So the, the, whatever it is we've released might not actually be accurate, but at the end of the day, we'll get it to a better point by working this, and we can only do it together because we'll only fight together. But from your standpoint, why is there still more than 100 years of military aviation where the self-evident and critical importance of air forces still doesn't seem to be recognized. Justin Bronk of, of uh, Russi made a terrific point. Right after this, everybody said, oh, we need more and bigger armies. 
when actually, in fact, the Air Forces are the ones that have been underinvested in and so actually cause the greatest vulnerability. Is there a sense that airmen everywhere have to do a little bit of a better job in terms of delivering that message in order to be able to get the resources as what is emerging to be, you know, you end up with a World War I stalemate because you don't have air superiority. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that statement. And the Air Power, Air and Space Power Association now was formed in 1946, after the Second World War, for that very purpose. It was a group captain who formed it. He recognized that there was a lack of understanding, even after the Second World War, when one can imagine, you know, it would be hard to miss air power flying over you every day. One, one million. The RAF was one million. Exactly. And, 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 you know, every family had someone who either was or knew somebody in the Air Force. So, so even then it was believed that the air power debate was not as well understood as it could be. And therefore the association was formed to try and promote the understanding of air power. And now it does air and space power. So that is our fundamental remit, and, and it's not one that's based on just, we just like telling our story, we do, but actually we do recognise that it's less understood, and we're about to go to the International Air Institute at Fairfoot, and you know, there will be 150,000 people there who think that an F-16 doing multiple loops and rolls off the top over, over their heads is air power. Well, it's the sexy bit of air power, but that doesn't tell even 5% of the story of what air fighting really requires in terms of complexity, in terms of investment, in terms of training. And in only when people understand that can they understand the value of it and therefore how much they're prepared to spend on it. And more importantly, whether it has a greater or lesser importance than any other particular domain. And I, I'm certainly not going to sit here and say air is more important than land or maritime, absolutely not. Um, and in fact, that point was made very well today about the integration of, of all domains, including space and cyber, obviously. But I do believe, and I think we made that point in conference rather well, that we don't want to fight the type of war that's happening in Ukraine right now. That, it, that is not a good place to be. And you avoid going to that place by making sure that the likely adversary Let's, let's be honest, Russia in this particular case, sees a NATO that is so strong and so ready and so capable that they know it, it's, it's madness to even attempt. So it becomes a conventional tripwire that they just will not cross because it will not be worth them doing so. And, and I think air power has such a strong role to play in that deterrence because we know that if air superiority had been won by Ukraine, in, in this war. Obviously that's quite unlikely based on the numbers involved, but I mean, imagine if they had, Russia wouldn't be anywhere near them. Everything would be 100 miles back, it would be back in Russia, logistics uh, systems would be in tatters, which is how we would have fought it had it been NATO. You know, those S-300s, S-400s would have been target number one every night until they were gone. And once they were gone, then we would just roll back everything else. And that's hard, it's not easy, it requires sophisticated capabilities that require investment. But when you, as an enemy, know that your opposition has that ability, you don't have the option to attack. And that is the key. That's, that's what air power is about. Air power is about stopping the war, not assisting its conduct in being. Indeed, and we heard that from Cass as well, right? The job number one is to establish that air superiority. Let me ask you, you know, Indo-Pacific did loom large uh, in this conference. It was one of the more key, and, and all the panels were well attended and, and tremendous insights from all of them. But as a European, an RAF officer with global experience, what is 
the sense that's developing, right? Australians are flying an E-7 now as part of the mission to try to secure NATO on, on the Ukraine uh, border. There's a wedge tail. The Australian air chief was here, a very large contingent from uh, the Indo-Pacific cruiser Wilsbach, who commands uh, Pacific Air Forces, is going to go air to air combat command. He's here as well, as, and he's a regular here. From your standpoint, what were the interesting Indo-Pacific messages that were delivered here and how European air forces have to think about it? Because again, Justin, Russi's Justin Bronx said, look, we, we don't have sufficient capability you know, in a European context, much less to get involved in an Indo-Pacific context. What's the thinking and how is that materializing from a European standpoint and an RAF standpoint? Yeah, I mean, a, a hugely complex subject, obviously, but let me try and sort of distill it down. I mean, the first lesson from the last two days has been that as, as dangerous as Russia is, China is 10 times capable. And the geopolitics or the geolocation of China, the island chain and everything involved, obviously Taiwan in the mix there, that geographical conflict is extremely complex and, and fighting in that arena is going to be very difficult. I think that tells all of us that nobody wants to have that fight either. So again, we're back into what's an effective deterrence to ensure that that doesn't happen. With Taiwan being the fundamental challenge because it's so near to China and yet so far away from our ability to protect it. So. China is a far more delicate um, situation. It is a far more dangerous situation if it goes badly wrong. And um, we do recognize that they are many times capable than, than Russia. Why does it matter to everyone that, that we are seen to be united? Obviously, we all want peace and stability. So to be united in that position has got to be the right thing to take. And that does mean showing solidarity, and it does mean sometimes that we deploy people, equipment to that area. A, to show that we are solid behind that alliance and that particular part of the world, but also to share our share of the burden with, with America, who clearly takes a major share of the NATO European burden. So, so there's a balancing act here to be done in terms of A, demonstrating will and intent, but also helping out and, and taking our turn. We all know that the Indo-Pacific is an important region. It is important for all our economies, uh, and particularly the UK now, as it looks for a different way out of its previous European relationship. So the Indo-Pacific matters. We have history there. We have friends there. And, and clearly, you know, Australia and New Zealand are classic examples of two countries very close to the UK. So it's important to us in our own geopolitical requirement too. The challenge is it's a long way away. Although I thought as Rob Chipman made, he made a really good point that Beijing is closer to London than it is to him in Canberra. And yet we see, we see the Indo-Pacific bomb as an Australian thing. Well, actually, when you look at the geography, we're, we're, we're about the same distance. So it is great that it is the same people all over again. It's the same people potentially operating in different places. So here's Australia putting an aircraft in to help us with Ukraine and we will do the same thing for them in, in their part of the world. So yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge. It is, it's perhaps more of a medium term challenge when you look at the geography and you look at the time scales of when things begin to become an issue. And so the question I think for all of us is we don't want a problem in two places at once. So if we end up continually having to deter Russia what capacity have we got to deter China at the same time? And of course, we're all watching, aren't we, how Russia and China talk and how they um, assist each other in their own endeavors. And so we need to be uh, very watchful of that. Last question. Defense Command paper is coming out. We heard from Armed Forces uh, Minister uh, James Heapy, who give, gave a, uh, a, a romp of a, uh, an address, as he always does. But he talked about the importance of cunning, 
not a lot of discussion about more investment, right? So sometimes I look at cunning as a replacement for actual investment. But he said that we're going to be investing in the mundane stuff, which is actually the engine of capability, whether cranes and infrastructure and all of that. What do you think are going to be the key messages from that, from an air power perspective in particular, um, that you're looking forward to seeing in the new paper? It's always a challenge to guess what ministers mean or what they're hinting at when it's only two weeks away and therefore it's probably in a fairly solid form already. The important thing to know about the Defence Command Pay, the Defence Command Pay was about how to spend the money they've got, not about how much money do they need. That debate's already been had. And he did talk about a 2.5% uplift of GDP when the fiscal situation, but that's some way off. So we know that. So the MOD is going to have to live within its means. So the question is, what's it going to spend the money on? He talked a lot about how platforms need to be capable of, of adjusting in their timeline. So if you're buying an aeroplane for 40 years, he doesn't expect it to be using the same computing power on day 40, on year 40 as it was in year one. And, and that will be a challenge because we all know how these systems are built and making them, if you like, plug and play is, has always been a challenge. We've all talked about plug and play and open system architecture recognizing that actually that, that's a challenge and, and companies rightly protect their IP and so how do you somehow get around that problem? He very much talked about how they were gonna thicken and I th he didn't use that word but I think it's probably the best way of describing it. So it's not about buying more things, not, not more tanks, not more airplanes, etc. There may be a little bit of that, we'll have to wait and see. But he, he definitely talked about the boring stuff. And he said if it's seen as a boring paper, he'll be happy. In fact, they say he said they'd be high-fiving because that's that's what they want to do. They, they realize that you know, having a thin line is not enough. You know, you, you don't deter people by having fancy air shows and lines of airplanes. What you do deter them in having is a stockpile that's going to last a long time. Weapon stocks, resilience, hardened shelters, the ability to operate from motorway sites or whatever it might be. And, and therefore he's talking about investing in that infrastructure and that resilience to thicken the armed forces so that they genuinely don't look like a hollowed out force. And I think the UK has, maybe everyone has done since the Cold War, has, has fallen slightly into a trap of hollowing out because they didn't envisage the type of war that we've now re-seen in Ukraine. And I think that's, that's where the command paper will go. Um, it was a, a terrific point, and his point about the importance of quantum computing also was spot on the mark. Sir, honor and pleasure. Thank you so much. It's a terrific event. It was uh, great to interact with everybody here, uh, and looking forward to having you back on the show to discuss broader air power lessons. Thanks so much. Thank you. All the best. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And it is my honor to welcome to the program now Brigadier General Mark LeBouille, he is the commander of Pegas 2023, the deployment of French aircraft to the Indo-Pacific that includes uh, 19 airplanes in total, 10 Rafale fighters, five A330 tanker transports, and four A400M Atlas transports. It is France's largest deployment to the region in many years, and it will be operating extensively across the region, including through Singapore, Indonesia, French Polynesia, Guam, Palau, Hawaii, South Korea, as well as Japan. His force is also going to be participating in the U.S. Air Force's massive 
Mobility Guardian 2023 exercise across the Indo-Pacific through July the 21st, involving 70 aircraft and 3,000 airmen. Uh, they are also going to be practicing, among other things, agile combat employment techniques that are seen to be vital in the future of operations in the region in the event of conflict. Aside from France, Australian, British, Canadian, Japanese, and New Zealand forces are also participating. General, thanks so very much for joining us. We know how incredibly uh, busy you guys are. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be able to speak with you today about this mission and about what we do with our U.S. partners. Indeed, this is the latest deployment to the region. Obviously, I remember many years ago talking to uh, Lieutenant General Conton when uh, there was a deployment of four Rafales to the region, which was the beginning of an increased and growing French presence. Uh, I should note that a French frigate is uh, now the lead ASW ship for the Nimitz battle group. So our forces are operating very, very closely together. But this is a significantly larger air exercise. What's the aim of this operation? Ultimately, what is it that uh, you want you and your forces and the French military to take from it? First, you described perfectly his mission with a number of aircraft, 19 aircraft flying from France uh, two weeks ago now. And for France and for me as mission commander of Pegasus 23 mission, we have three main objectives. The first one is to demonstrate our full capability and commitment to support our overseas citizens and territory. You know that we have roughly 2 million French citizens in uh, Indo-Pacific area. Second, it's to establish and develop cooperation with the other nations, uh, as well as develop our interoperability capacities with our partners and allies through this kind of uh, actions, operation, stopover, and specifically with the exercise with United States Air Force of the Pacific. And third point, last but not the least, to better understand the context we are operating in this area and share our points of view in order to be a, to try to be a proactive power and help to find solutions, to be a part of a solution provider. Interoperability and building interoperability is important. All militaries have been working that. Afghanistan was very important in trying to address some of those gaps and seams. How are you going to be working and what are the types of missions you're going to be executing, both in a Pegas context, but also in a Mobility Guardian context where you are going to be working directly with a lot of your allies and partners as well? We are working on, uh, for example, air-to-air refueling missions with French assets and partners' assets on air defense missions, on uh, uh, combined air operations together, on also on the ground cross servicing uh, with uh, other air forces to be able to work with our mechanicians on their aircraft with or with their mechanicians on our aircraft to be able to gain in terms of reactivity, responsiveness, and ability to be, let's say, plug and play or plug and fight. Mm-hmm. when we deploy in the area. And how many personnel are engaged uh, in your operation? So from the starting point in France, we were roughly 320 people uh, with our 19 aircraft. Now we have six, six Rafale, two uh, air-to-air refueling aircraft and two F-400. And so we are close to uh, 250 people. And you're all self-deploying on your own uh, airplane. So when you guys move, you all move together. Yes. And I am at Hawaii, uh, Honolulu, because that's where you find the, the strategy, the operative level for the co- commanding the operation with PACAF and, and PACOM. So that's why I'm here with 
a small team of 10 people around me. And at Guam and Palau today, you have uh, other assets and uh, the main part for the manpower is 240 people. Obviously, agile combat employment is one of the techniques. Emission-controlled operations uh, is another one. Indeed, I mean, there are elements of this that are emission-denied uh, as well, right, to go to full mission command. What are the sweep of some of the exercises that you guys are going to be conducting as well? Yes, you highlight a very interesting and important point of uh, our training today with PACAF. Agile combat employment is really for us uh, a new way of operating, but key way of operating in this vast area of the Pacific with logistic issues, chain of command issues, and we are, are really working on it. I mean, for example, we have hub Air Force Air bases and spokes airfield on other islands. And the idea is to be able to very quickly fly from one island to another one. Uh, not to be predictable and to be able on the, the new position to be uh, efficient when fighting or doing some operation like air-to-air defense operation or air-to-sea missions also. And it relies on, of course, fighters, but air-to-air capabilities to give them gas enough to do the mission and, of course, on logistic and the ability to deploy assets with, uh, for example, for F-400, but with air mobility command aircraft for U.S. partners. And uh, that's the key point is the logistic capability to be uh, responsive. Of course, we have some things to do with classic war operations with aircraft, but also with air and space forces, we work on the different crises. We we can see an overlap of crises in the Pacific with climate change, environment, uh, security issues, illegal trafficking, and of course, uh, we, we have uh, to think about what we can do with our Rafale as a fighter aircraft, but also with our aircraft and with satellites, with uh, space forces, we also try to take into account these kinds of crises. So not only, you know, fighting classical military operations, but we work also on the different crises and uh, our military assets are very important for us to help to find solutions on it. Let me take you to the question of uh, agile combat employment. I think if you went to the height of the Cold War, whether you were a French aviator, I mean, all NATO aviators knew that their bases could be struck. And so there were regular practices for mass takeoffs and agile movement. We got away from that, obviously, in the after the Cold War ended. But now we're relearning some of those lessons because we're seeing in Ukraine, if you can see a target, it can be struck very rapidly. From your standpoint, what's the biggest mindset change and the kind of training you're specifically doing and been doing so that you can get the force to move as quickly as it needs to move? Because the worst thing to have happened to your air forces is to have them destroyed on the ground. Yes, as you said, we are relearning this kind of way to operate. The first point is mission command. That means that we have to be sure that all aviators, all units, clearly understood the mission intent. Because when you deploy very fast from an island to another one, you're not sure to be linked 24-7 with your chief, with the the operative level or strategic level. So you have to be be sure that your guys on the ground uh, clearly understood the mission to be able, in case of uh, you have no link to, to be able to, to fight as you want to. And the other point is logistic 
mean uh, aircraft deployed, they have to be uh, well supported in terms of fuel, ammunition, CIS systems, and that's also a big challenge. So two sides for this, uh, this kind of um, concept like uh, AC, first mission command, second, to prepare the ability to be able to operate if you don't have uh, all the tools you have usually. How is the force holding up under the kind of operations you guys are conducting, whether the fighters, the transports, or the tankers? Are they all performing uh, to your expectations? Yes. Uh, yes, they are, really are performing to the expectations. And as I said, it's really a, a team in terms of uh, uh, for, for my deployment. The team is built with these three aircraft, and these three aircraft, Rafale, MRTT, and F-400. What is very interesting today is that these three aircraft have ability to do wide range of missions. For Rafale, air-to-air defense, air-to-ground, and, and a lot of different missions, key missions. MRTT, it's also the, the, it's the aircraft that gives the gas to go far from the mainland, but also the aircraft with some C2 capabilities that provides the link between the Rafale deployment and the mainland. And so we, we can give some orders from Paris or from Lyon, for example, with uh, our command there. And with the F-400, it gives us the ability to deploy our mechanics, our pieces, to be able to be uh, ready to fight as soon as we are we land somewhere. So uh, today, the three of them work very per- work perfectly together. Yes. And also what we try to, to work, what we do also with our partners, and especially with U.S. guys today, is to be able to be sure that our first plus generation Rafale and the fifth generation aircraft like F-22 or F-35 can work together on the same space and with the same uh, you know, networks and uh, share information, share situation awareness. And uh, we are working on it and uh, it's pretty good. You talked about the importance uh, of uh, logistics. You're far away from uh, France, but you know, even though the French Air Force is one of the most capable in the world, like every Air Force, it has actually had to shrink as it's grown more sophisticated, unfortunately. The frontline Rafale force is about 110 aircraft. I think 60 of those are nuclear coded, uh, obviously for, for the defense of France, but you have almost 10% of the force operating forward. What are the biggest challenges associated with an ambitious deployment like this, and especially sustained operations uh, over time, because you guys are actually operating beyond uh, the mobility guardian exercise, right? You guys are also gonna be exercising across the region for a little bit longer. What are the biggest challenges and how are you ensuring that you're getting the most of the forces that you have deployed forward? The main challenge for, from my perspective, is to be able to have manpower, I mean, uh, aviators who can tackle this kind of mission thanks to their skills, their mindset, their commitment, because uh, they have to find solutions. The point is we have to fly or to travel with very light luggage in terms of uh, maintenance and pieces to be able to do a lot of stopovers and to be able to do that fast. Uh, We have to uh, like the ACE concept to be able to do that with few people and to rely on our aircraft in terms of uh, maintenance and uh, uh, the way they can fly with not much uh, maintenance hours to to be sure that they are are fit to fly. So first main point, 
manpower aviators second to train to be able first to uh, to fly with not much uh, maintenance and second to rely also on our partners to be able to with our stopovers to for example to uh, to land on a country and to be able to plug and play on this country and that's also one of the main points of our missions if it's to prepare the future on it. Let me take you to one last question, which is for any country, a deployment like this uh, is a challenge. On the other hand, the French Air Force, many Americans might not recognize that it's actually a a globally deployed force uh, on any given day. So even though you're doing your exercise, the rest of the French Air Force has to do its job all around the world. Tell the audience a little bit of the kinds of missions and the kind of places the French Air Force is actually operating every single day. You're right. It's a huge challenge to do this kind of mission, but also it's a question of credibility. Because we are able to do this kind of mission with, as you say, 19 aircraft far from the mainland France, that shows that we are able to do that for real in case of a real crisis, even if we have other missions, uh, permanent missions and permanent missions. We have, of course, missions in mainland France, air defense, air to air, nuclear deterrence, two main missions for the Air Force. And also we have missions with NATO, is part of uh, Europe from us, and missions in Africa. A lot of missions at the same time, and uh, it's what we call ubiquity sometimes. The ability for air power to be on different places roughly at the same time to product uh, operational effects. And that's a great a new thing we can do with Air Force, with for us, the three aircraft like Rafale, uh, MRTT, air to air refueling aircraft, and F400. That's why we can deploy very fast and be back to uh, home very fast also, and be on the different places in the world to product effects with our partners and with also on the joint level with the Navy and the Army guys. So uh, when is it that you finally arrive home, sir? When are you guys back in metropolitan France? We'll be back on the beginning of August. Uh, the 3rd of August, we'll be back in, uh, in France. Yes, after new stopovers, after the mission in Guam, we'll go to South Korea, Japan, Indonesia, uh, and of course our overseas territories, New Caledonia, uh, French Polynesia, and after that, Qatar, Djibouti, and, and friends. Well, sir, we uh, wish you and the entire team bon voyage, uh, bon courage, and uh, look forward to talking to you afterwards, maybe to get uh, a little bit of after-action uh, lessons. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us and all the very best to you and your team. Thank you very much. Let me uh, exprime my uh, special thanks to Endo PACOM Commander and PACAF Commander to have given us this great opportunity to develop today our interoperability. And I'm very proud of my uh, aviators. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends a special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week.